Greetings this morning. In the birthday name of the Lord Jesus, I say welcome to this part of the service. Um, I'm thankful that it's a little warmer. I thought we, we'd like to have a little more than decorations to make it warm in here. And uh, we're glad for the heat. So uh, I hope you are comfortable. hope you're not too comfortable that you fall asleep. But let's look to the Lord this morning for direction and teaching and so on. And I do thank Daniel for the first part of the message too and the thought-provoking thoughts that both he and Brian brought, brought out. I'd like to talk this morning about saints in the making. Uh, you know, as you look across the Christian landscape and uh, you quickly observe. Now, someone would say maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we should only look at Jesus and not look anywhere else. But as you look across the Christian landscape and you see the many varied uh, Christian denominations, there's uh, divergent belief systems. In fact, there are sometimes completely contradicting belief systems. There are some Christians who say this is what's right. There's others who say this is what's right. And you have some who emphasize this and you have others who emphasize this. You have some who don't believe this. And on and on we could go. And uh, as we think of that whole thing, we might think, well, wouldn't it be nice to be part of the early church when things were clear, where the church was pure, where it was pristine, where it didn't have this muddle that's around today. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The church, when she was young, when she was powerful, Ernest Loosely wrote a book. Some of you might have wrote it, uh, read it. Uh, when the church was young, in the foreword he wrote, he said this, The experience of the early church is very much like that of a young and growing child. There was newness and freshness in her. She knew exploration, experiment, discovery, and wonder. You know, there has been... And there is and has been a lot of interest in the early church, the apostolic church. And it's been good in many ways, as I look at it, to look at the early church. I think that has some value to it. It's good to go back to the example given to us by the early church and how they did. In Ephesians chapter 2, John probably went through this here probably a couple weeks ago. Yeah, a couple of verses there, and uh, where Paul says, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So here you have um, the metaphor of a building. You have Jesus Christ, he's the cornerstone, you have the apostles and prophets, and they're the foundation. And then the early church was laid directly on that foundation. So it would make sense 
or it would seem reasonable that the early church would be an example for us today. So I thought maybe I could, um, we could take a look at an early church congregation, and uh, I'll probably, I'll probably, this will probably end up being a book study, a little bit like Johnny's doing with the Book of Ephesians. We're going to look at an early Christian congregation. It's actually very early. It's only about four or five years old, right at the beginning. And if it's true that the early Christian church was pure and pristine and powerful, it can't get much better than this. So we're going to look at the Corinthian church. And I can think, I can see some eyebrows raising already. Pure, pristine, and powerful. The, Christ, the Corinthian church. Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, don't turn there yet, we won't read there at first. The church was about four or five years old. It was a brand new church. And anyone familiar with the letter knows that pure and pristine and powerful does not fit this congregation. If I would wish to name our church after the Corinthian church, you might want to name it Oasis Christian Confusion. Or maybe um, Disorganized Unchristian Disunity. The church had problems. And yet it was an early church. You know, sometimes we romanticize the early church. We can do that with a lot of things. We romanticize things after they're gone, after they're buried, after the age is past. We romanticize things. Oh, the marvelous start of this country. If you study a little bit more in the history and some of the lives of the people, it wasn't as marvelous as sometimes it seems. But we can do that. To romanticize means to um, glamorize it or look at something through rose-colored glasses. It's You see beauty, but it's actually distorted reality. That's what it is. You think you see something beautiful, but it's not reality. It's romanticized. Yet, the letter to the Corinthians has long been one of my favorite letters, books of the Bible. In fact, I have received a lot of comfort and insight and direction from that letter. Now, you say, why would you? Well, it's a little bit like this. When I sit down with someone, and I do this occasionally, you sit down with someone and you have an open heart conversation with them. You have a deep, it's a realistic interaction with one another about your inner heart, your own struggles, your own fears, um, and your Heartfelt desires of what you desire in your walk with God and your life and so on. The front comes off. You're real. And 
and you can share your beliefs and your opinions and your struggles with each other. Your feelings and your emotions come out. And when you do that, you, you had experiences like that, you find out that the other person you're talking to is not that much different than you. Sometimes, well, not sometimes, many times, most times, we just have an image. You have an image of somebody. You have an image of who they are. But you get down below the surface, you see yourself many times. In fact, when you have a conversation with, with someone like that, you find out that you're actually peers. You're, fellow, you're having fellowship. You're actually fellows in the same ship. And, and that kind of conversation is encouraging to me. It, 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 you derive strength from it. Because you're connecting with someone who, who now can, you can work together with as you go on. Well, I feel the same way with the book of Corinthians. In this book, in the letter to the Corinthians, there is no pie-in-the-sky idealism. There's no super spiritual Christians in this book. Uh, there are some who thought they were, but they really weren't. And so... It's raw and unvarnished reality of real church life in the early early Christian church. It, uh, it delineates the problems they had. It gives practical advice how to deal with those problems. And in doing so, it distills a lot of doctrinal teaching that I find encouraging. In fact, it's, a, it's like reading a counseling book. It... It's, here's a problem. Here's why you have the problem. And here's what you should do about that problem. Or the issue or the sin that you're dealing with. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. And we'll look at the beginning of this church, the church at Corinth. Paul came to Corinth on his second missionary journey after he was in the Philippian jail and got shook loose by an earthquake. After he went to um, Athens and he preached on Mars Hill. After all that, he came to Corinth. And this is a chapter 18 where it uh, records this, this event. And we're going to read a number of verses here. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. 
And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuaded men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I would bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it. I will be no judge of such matters. And he dragged them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sothenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of these things. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed into Syria. And we'll stop right there. As we're going to get familiar with this congregation, I want to describe a little bit what for place this was where Paul came to. If you would look at a map of Greece, and I'm sure you children all learned it in your geography in school, that you know what Greece looks like. And you know what the southern end of Greece looks like, right? At the southern end of Greece, there looks something like, looks like an island, but there's something that keeps it from being an island. It's a four mile wide piece of land that goes northeast to southwest that connects this piece of land here with the mainland of Greece. It's called an isthmus. And in this four mile wide piece of land, was where the city of Corinth was. So anyone going from the mainland to this island, not this island, this peninsula, had to go through Corinth. And also, since it was only four miles wide, the sea came, to, uh, the one sea came to the east side, and the other sea, the long, uh, narrow um, sea came in from the west side, ships to avoid the dangerous journey around the bottom of the peninsula, would come to Corinth, and they would go across land with their product and, and keep on sailing. So if you were a little ship, they actually had uh, rollers that they would lift the ship out of the, out of the water and put it on these rollers and take it four miles over land and drop it back in, and off they go. Either way. It was a big ship, they would unload it and haul it over land and then put it on another ship on the other side. So, north and south, east and west, trade going through this city all the time. People coming and going. This was a major 
metropolitan area. People from all over the world. There was stuff from all over the world there. In modern days, I would think it probably would be a major shopping center because if you wanted to get things from who knows in what part of the world, you would go to Corinth because it was there. It went through there. And so it was an enormous commercial center. I'd like to read a little bit more about um, out of a little commentary that I have about Corinth here. Here says, the city which Paul entered with weakness and much fear and trembling. That, that, that phrase there comes actually from another place where he talks about himself. So he, this city which Paul entered with weakness and much fear and trembling, like Athens, was dominated with idolatry. The great temple of Aphrodite was situated a thousand feet above the level of the city on a citadel. Citadel and in constant view of the townsfolk. Connected with its worship were a thousand consecrated prostitutes who enriched the temple with their sanctified vice. To live like a Corinthian or to be Corinthianized meant in those times living a life of luxury and licentiousness. It is often said by those familiar with its luxury and evils that travelers could not afford a visit to Corinth. So not only was it a major trading city with people all over the world, it was a major cesspool of people also. It had the temple, it had its idolatry, it had its prostitutes, and at the base of the hill was another temple, called Apollo. Now, Apollo was the god, the Greek god of music and poem and song. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Poetry, art. Well, in this temple, actually, instead of female prostitutes, there were male prostitutes in this temple. And, And that temple became the center of the most blatant and horrendous evils you could imagine or could not imagine, I hope. This sounds like a good place to start a church, does it not? Which one of us is willing or would like to go to Las Vegas or some other evil place and start a church? So, but in, as we just read here, in those 18 months that Paul was there, a church was started. A church of Jesus Christ. Then Paul left and he went, well, about four or five years later, he was situated at Ephesus, which is directly across the Asian, Asian Sea. I don't know exactly how many miles. It might be three or four hundred miles. I'm not quite sure. And that's where Paul was. And then Paul is getting reports. He's getting reports about the church that he started in Corinth. And it comes from a number of different sources. You know, you hear a report about something, you might want to or you might not want to believe it. But if it comes and there's first-hand witnesses and then it comes from someone else and then there's correspondence between it, 
a few areas where that reports came from was in 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 first Corinthians chapter one and verse eleven. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So he heard it from that household. At the end of the book, he also talks about the coming of three men. The coming, he said, I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fort Portinaeus and Achaeus, Achaicus, for that which was lacking in your part they have supplied. In other words, there were some other men that came. And also, there was a letter from them. And there was actually some correspondence between them. And you will find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 to 11. And I'll just read it again. Just tell you a little bit the context here. Paul says, as, as he's writing to them again, he said, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written, this is now this letter, I have written unto you not to keep company if any man is called a brother, be a fornicator, and so on. So there was some correspondence between there. But as we turn to 1 Corinthians, and you can do that now. As Paul is sitting down to write a letter to the church where he had just a few years before left, he sees, he has heard, and he's aware that there is a lot of problems. He sees a sea of issues. And... um, and I know some people say that you don't have problems. They're just problems. They're just opportunities and so on. But there were real issues here. There is disunity and immorality and lawsuits going on in the church. There is an improper use of gifts, an improper view of liberty, an improper place of the women in the church, improper lifting up of leaders. There was improper observance of the Lord's Supper. There was a lack of humility, a lack of love, a lack of spiritual growth. And that list is only partial. How would you start a letter to a group of people like that? And you sit down and you need to address how would you sit down? How would you feel writing a letter to something, a situation such as this? Well, we know a little bit how Paul felt. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, he actually describes how he felt. He said, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Or like another translation puts it, there were more tears than ink on the parchment. That is how Paul started this letter. And that's how he wrote it. And you know, you, 
are not actually emotionally drawn into something unless it really matters. And it really mattered to Paul. So this is part of the pure, pristine, powerful church of the first century. Let's read the first couple of verses in 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God and Sothenes, our brother. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In this painful letter, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, introduces himself on the first line. Nowadays, when we write a letter, when I write, when I read, some of my, every once in a while I do this, I read my wife's circle letters. And I start reading a letter. I don't know who wrote it. I got to look around and see, oh, yeah, this person wrote this letter. And then I can read it and know where it comes from. But in this case, it was coming in that day to introduce yourself first, which is what Paul did. It was not an uncommon thing. But there's one other thing Paul does right at the beginning of the letter. He actually establishes his authority at the beginning of the letter. Uh, He says he is called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, calling is a fairly strong word. Um, It's not quite as strong as the word summons, I don't think. As As I try to evaluate this call, like if one time, and you can ask me later about what I did, but one time I did something wrong and I was summoned to appear before the court. Now, I had to appear before the court, uh, not before the court, the judge. It was else come or be arrested. That was a summons. You come. Well, Paul was called. Now, that word called was almost as strong as the summons, but not quite. I think not. But it's more like uh, an appointment or a charge. A little bit more like we had uh, Neil and Lorraine and uh, the Dave Brennemans. They had uh, they had the charge earlier in the year to organize a um, show and tell night. It, uh, when all our homeschoolers got together and we planned our yearly activities. Each month we're going to do this and this, and the month of December, yous are responsible for organizing a show-and-tell night. So you had to make sure you had a place, you had to get a date, you had to get everything set up. There was a charge given you. You have it appointed to that. So that's a little bit like Paul, when he was arrested there on the road to Damascus, Right then and there, and through the next several years, there was a charge or an appointment laid upon Paul. God in heaven, and he he says it here, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. God's will is that he be an apostle, and he was appointed 
He was charged with fulfilling this call to be an apostle. You can't ignore a man like this. He's sent directly from God to do a specific task. Try to ignore in your mind once. Let's imagine you're eating supper with your family. And a sheriff comes to the door. And you say, well, hey, we're busy right now. We're eating supper. Just come back some other time. You don't do that. He's come with an appointment. I don't know what it is, what it might be. But he's come with an appointment, and you better respond to it. Or else, behind the scene, there's some machinery going to start rolling. And eventually, that machinery will grind you in its gear somewhere along the line. So you better respond head on early on. So Paul was one of the original apostles with special powers and abilities not given to others. The most obvious ability that we have from Paul that is not given to others is the ability to write scripture. When Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And when Peter writes that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of God, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It is understood that the, that the um, phenomenon of new covenant revelation was given only to those apostles and prophets of that era. That God actually moved them to, to write down what we have today. And the early church, when they canonized the scripture, they did not create the canon. They only recognized what was inspired from what was not inspired. And they made, they had a number of rules and they made a distinction that this is the inspired word of God and this is not. So they recognized. So Paul was an apostle with the powers and abilities not given to others, both then and now. He was appointed and chosen by God for this. Later on, if we get through this letter later on, we'll probably talk more about the apostles and the apostolic gifts and so on. But in spite of Paul establishing his authority right on the front, he does actually not establish something. He actually does not establish a hierarchy or a, um, a um, ecclesiastical, let's, let's just think once, just let your mind go to the Catholic Church, where there is someone at the top, and then you have the next structure, then you have the next structure, then you have the next structure, then you have the laity. Paul didn't do that. And you can tell it by how he introduces himself as an apostle with authority, and he says, with Sophanes, our brother. So you have both together, the um, authority and yet brotherhood without a structure like that. There is actually order and structure in the church, but it's not in the idea of sacred clergy and common laity. So anyhow, Sophanes, let's look at Sophanes. Sophanes is a very interesting character. Uh, turn back to uh, Acts 18. 
we have some very interesting things. After Paul was kicked out of the Jewish synagogue, in verse 7, and he departed, he departed out of the synagogues, and he entered a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Now, how far did Paul go from the synagogue? The next house. I mean, you couldn't move this guy very far, could you? I mean, he, he seemed like he went right sort of in the middle of the action. And that's where, he, that, I want, that's, where I'm, that's where I'm appointed. I'm called of God. I want things to happen. So he got thrown out of the synagogue and he goes, sets, sets up shop next door to the synagogue. And what happens in the next verse? And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord. So now you have, I don't know exactly what the chief ruler is, but it sounds to me like he's someone pretty, pretty high up in the synagogue. Okay. So now the chief ruler, he quits going to the synagogue and he starts coming next door. Now, what are they going to do at the synagogue? But they're going to have to choose another chief ruler, right? That's what they have to do. Well, turn down, uh, just not turn down, but look down at verse uh, 17. Then all the Greeks took Sothenes. Now, here's Sothenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Now, um, well, let's, who started the uproar in this city? If you look up at um, verse 12, it says the Jews made insurrection with one accord. And down here at verse 17, it says the Greeks took Sothenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue. What you have here is not Christian persecution. What you have here is anti-Semitism, where actually the Greeks were just because, because there was no law and order that cared about this thing. The Greeks just took it out on some Jew, and he was the chief ruler of the synagogue. He was the one, apparently, that was appointed to take the place of uh, Crispus. So the second ruler of the synagogue... And where do we find him in 1 Corinthians? He's with Paul. So the second ruler of the synagogue also got converted. So they had to start a third ruler. I mean, elect the third ruler. I mean, I think Paul was a little hard on the synagogue. Don't you think so? I think so. And... Um, So it's no wonder the Jews were pretty upset at Paul. Even though he was going to the Greeks, he was pretty hard on the Jewish church. But now here goes five years by. Five years go by. There's this, I don't know if this church is still meeting next door to the synagogue or not. I don't know where the church is meeting. It doesn't say that I know of. Five years go by and the church is in chaos. The testimony in the community is not good. Clearly, the Sothenes was with Paul. I don't think Sothenes was a part of that. 
But his home congregation was a part of that. Now, what do you think by now the Jews who had stayed in the synagogue were talking about the Christian church about? What do you think the Jews were trying to say? Yes, you know, that that guy and they were talking all the evil stuff. And five years later, just look at him. Just look at the church. See, it was good that you didn't leave the synagogue and go with the Christian. Look at how they live. We got it a whole lot better back here. So, do you understand why Paul was grieved? One reason why Paul was grieved. Do you think it hurt or helped the cause of Christ and his kingdom if the church is out of order? If the church is, and let me say, are things a lot different today than it was then? Let's imagine a revival happens in a conservative community today. People get saved. There is people that have lifelong bondages that actually come to the Lord Jesus Christ and get full deliverance. And there's exuberance and there's joy and there's assurance that goes on. Forgiveness of sin. The Spirit of God comes in power in a way that's not known before. And then, five or ten or 15 years later, that new revival movement church is in disarray or is worldly or is whatever. I say, what a testimony. What a marred testimony to Christ such a situation is. Can you relate to that? Do you understand what I'm talking about? It happens. It happens in our day. And those who who stay with their religion only, their lifestyle religion, without the power of God, say, look at that. Look at those folks. And here we are at Oasis with both the opportunity and the possibility to either lift up the name of Christ or to mar his testimony. We do. That must have been one of the things that really grieved Paul as he saw the disarray the church was at. Because he was the one who was right in the middle of that Jewish synagogue, right at the beginning. He was right in the middle and proclaiming the power of Christ, telling them that their Messiah had come, telling them that it was a new day. And five years later, the testimony was what it was. But Paul has another lesson for us, too. In verse 2, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians. After he introduces himself as the apostle, he addresses the church. The church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. This is Paul's recognition of them. He is the one who saw these people. Many people came to the Lord. And he recognized them as being genuinely saved. They were real Christians for the most part. 
That's what the word sanctified in Christ Jesus means. It means that when someone repents of their old life and turns and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, that person is saved. He is transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. That person is a Christian. And Paul recognized that. He, he had no doubt of the genuineness of their experience. He knew they were Christians. They were sanctified. They were set apart from the world for the purpose of God. But he seemed to indicate with those few words, called to be saints. He seems to have something in mind here. Now, this word called is the same word as called to be an apostle in verse 1. When the Corinthians were sanctified in Christ Jesus and they're called to be saints, they're actually appointed. They are actually charged in being a saint. Just as Paul was appointed and charged with the task of being an apostle, so the Corinthians were appointed and charged to be saints. This is just a little bit what... Just a little bit what Daniel was talking about this morning. That's part of the charge that God's people have. Called to be saints or holy people. There is a position of being and there is a condition of being. And the two are to agree with one another. A position of being and a condition of being. The condition of being simply, well, you could go back to Ephesians chapter 2 that John just went through not too long ago. He said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Our salvation, the cleansing work of our soul, the new mind that we get in Christ Jesus it is actually the work of God. It is not something you do. It's not something you um, accomplish. It's something you get. It's a gift. And that the gift is that position that we're talking about. And, um, and, uh, and the Corinthians have believed, as it says in Acts 18, I'll just read a verse, and Crispus the chief ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his house and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And a couple of verses before that, when uh, Paul had that vision, he said, Paul, uh, the Lord told him to, I am with thee and no man shall set hurt on thee to hurt thee for I have much people in this city. So they were Christians. They were God's people. But they were called to be saints. Now the charge or the calling to be a saint is just as binding as Paul's, as Paul's call was to be an apostle. He had to respond to that call. That call came. That charge came. It was directed specifically to him. But to God's people comes the call to be a saint. And that call is absolutely clear and firm also. It's not just for the Corinth church, for the Corinthian church, 
but it's called to be saints with all that in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's interesting how Paul doesn't leave any anything uncovered. He just goes, well, it's called to be saints. And maybe someone could say, well, that's that's for them. But it says with all that everywhere call in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's us. Anyone here who has called on the name of the Lord Jesus, you're called to be a saint. Well, what is a saint? Well, if you're a Catholic, uh, you can become a saint after you die. If you have done at least one miracle in your life and have overwhelming testimony of holiness of life, then after you die, you could become canonized as a saint. So is that the calling we're talking about? Well, you know it's not. A saint is someone who has been saved and has received the Holy Spirit into their lives. And someone who has received the Holy Spirit into their lives and constantly yields him or herself to that spirit becomes saintly. (laughs) Say it that way. That person becomes saintly. I read here in first in Galatians here a few verses. After Paul gives the fruit of the spirit, the love and the joy and the peace, he says this. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. And he says, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Here's another translation. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implication in every detail of our lives. So what was the problem with the Corinthians? Were they known for love, joy, peace, and long-suffering? Were they known for that? No, for the most part, they were not known for walking in the Spirit. Although they had all kinds of spiritual gifts manifesting in their, in their, uh, in the, at, least, at least in their uh, gatherings, but they weren't walking in the Spirit. To make application to us, I guess I'd like to ask, how are we known? Are we known as people who are saints, as people who are walking in that Spirit? The call to walk in the Spirit is the same today as it was then. It is to affect every area of our lives. How do you seek to honor God and to love him exclusively above all? Rejecting everything that is contrary to his word. Allow his love and purpose to fill you and flow out of you in worship to him and love for others. Spurgeon says, has this quote here. He said, holiness is better than morality. He said, holiness goes beyond it. 
It affects the heart. Holiness respects the motive. It regards the whole nature of man. A moral man does not do wrong in act. A holy man hates the thought of doing wrong. A moral man does not swear, but a holy man adores. A moral man would not commit outward sin, but a holy man would not commit inward sin. But if committed, he would pour forth a flood of tears. Sainthood, called to be saints. I imagine John will soon get to this verse in Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about, in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Walk worthy of that vocation that you are called, and that calling is the vocation of being a saint. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians with an anguished heart because of their condition. But he, and and this is another application for us. When we see another believer not in the condition that they should be in, but you are convinced that they are a believer, that you acknowledge their position in Christ. Acknowledge that, like Paul did. But, like Paul, be anguished of heart because of their condition. And be anguished enough to make a difference in their lives, whatever, whatever, whatever form or shape that takes for you. Acknowledge both their position and also acknowledge the calling. When you are responsible to confront somebody, whether it be a child or an employee or a sibling or a fellow believer or anyone in your relationships, how do you, how do you come across to them? I, uh, I think, yeah, Mark mentioned how he broke the window and he went in and, and he acknowledged it to his mom and his mom gave him a little scolding. And um, that's natural, I think, of moms to do that. But I want to check your thought a little bit. When you're confronted with somebody doing something wrong, situations are all different and there's not, this doesn't apply to every case. But in the most part, it's not the best to just lay in on them. That's not what Paul did. He didn't. He 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 saw major issues, but he did not come with this letter. And boy, now you're going to get it. He didn't. And I think that has some something to us. You know, you can respond in a very unholy manner to other people's unholiness. Our home occasionally gets sort of critical. People pick on each other. And my tendency is to be critical of my critical children. Let's stop that. <laughs> well, surely an atmosphere develops in the home. But it doesn't get solved with putting more of the same atmosphere in the home. 
And unholiness in a life of a believer is not solved with more unholiness coming from you to them. And so as I look at the, at the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I learn a lot. At least up here, and I trust it'll be learned by my experience of life also. But rather than say to whoever you're talking, you should know better. What were you thinking? Look how you hurt me. Look what you're making the family look like. Or whatever, you know. Rather, it's to affirm them. And to get close and minister to them. That is what I, what I see in these couple verses here. The next time, Lord willing, we will um, continue maybe in the next number of verses there and look at the blessings and how, how Paul blessed the church at Corinth before he went into the main issues that he's dealing with. But uh, this is as far as we're going this morning. So may the Lord give us direction. As we look in his word for direction, may he make us like him as we read his word. Why don't we just stand for a word of prayer if you can. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you have given us this glimpse into the life of your church so clearly upon the pages of holy scriptures lord we thank you lord that you have given it to us but we pray most of all lord that you would actually instruct us in our hearts as well as our minds how to how to have this how to hide the word in our heart how to use it as your example to us how to use the example of how you work with your people in the past how we should react and respond to each other now. I pray, Lord, for each one here, Lord. I pray, Lord, as we interact with one another, that you would help us to act with grace, not to put away the calling to become saints, not to put away the need for confrontation and correction, but, Lord, to do it in a gracious and a holy manner. Lord, we pray, Lord, that your testimony would go forth that your people are holy and righteous and that it's the place to go. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated.